everybody. It is time for Apollo Swattered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we have one of our... Deep Conversations. A deep conversation with my friend, Dr. Todd M. Johnson. Now, this is the second part of a two-part conversation that I had with Todd. And if you haven't heard the first, I would highly recommend going back and listening to that one. And in this episode, in this conversation, you're going to hear Todd and I talk about the global church a lot. Now, I know that many of us are thinking, I don't need to know this. This doesn't relate to me. You would be totally wrong. Because one of the things that we have seen, especially in the United States, is that there has been a shift. There's a lot of conversation about ethnicity and race, as well as immigrants and migration and all of these different things. And when we come down to it as Christ followers, we see that we are to make disciples of all nations. And if God is working among the nations and he is changing the face of global Christianity, he is browning it up, if you will, then we need to know how to work with one another. We need to see how we can participate in what God is doing in the world. Because if God is bringing the nations to us or he's moving the nations around, he is doing it for his plan and purposes. And we need to participate in that no matter what our ethnic background is. So I would heavily encourage you to listen into this conversation that I had with Todd and ask yourself, what is God showing me about the nations and how can I participate in that? Happy listening. In the last hundred and some years, we've seen a massive shift in what Christianity looks like. Could you just explain a bit about what that is and how things have changed? Yeah, well, it's probably the most important finding, you know, uh, of our work. And it's it's a finding in the sense that it's it, in this case it really is a statistical reality, and it's it's pretty simple. Um, and that is, uh, in 1900, 18 uh, percent of all Christians lived in the global South, um, which means 82 percent of all Christians were Europeans and North Americans, or North Americans of European descent. Let's say. Um, which is a is a lot. That's a that's a big majority. Um, today, sixty seven percent of all Christians live uh, in the global South, which means only thirty three or, or about a third, a third of all Christians are in the global North. Um, and and that I, I don't think there's there's probably nothing more important for Christians really everywhere, but particularly in the global North in the Western world. Uh, to grapple with. So what does it mean to be a part of a faith which is largely found in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, and Oceania? Um, it must mean something. It certainly means that Christianity is, is no longer um, uh, a predominantly Western religion. It, you know, if it was in the past, at least it was statistically speaking. Um, so, so part of it is, what does it mean to be part of this global faith? And I feel, of course, like like this, the, the global nature of Christianity today is is actually more 
in line with the biblical text. In, in other words, you know, we've known all along that, you know, the gospel is a is good news for all the peoples of the world. So it would be odd to say, you know, I, you know, I belong to this universal faith. And by the way, everybody, every Christian in the world lives in Belgium. You know, I mean, that would be a very strange way to think about your faith. How can it be universal and yet be so dominantly a one culture? Um, so instead, what we have today is this amazing uh, variety of Christianity that spread all around the world. Um, and, and, I, and I had a little taste of this when I was uh, in Thailand. I mentioned I went to Thailand, you know, when I was young. And, and it turned out that for a little while there in, in this Youth with a Mission team, I was the only American, uh, only um, uh, Westerner, male Westerner. And I was working with a team uh, from Malaysia and the Philippines and South Africa and a couple other places. And we were we were sharing our faith with Cambodians, and one day one of the Cambodians said, "Who are you people? Uh, you know, where are you from?" It seems like we were saying, you know, we're we're from the planet Earth, and we have good news for you because we weren't tied to any particular nationality. And I, I just never forget how good it was to witness with this global faith, that people knew this was something special because of, you know, because of uh, who was standing in front of them. Um, and it couldn't be, certainly couldn't be pegged as a Western religion, given who was there. Um, and I think that's a, that's a positive development. What are some of the, the challenges? I mean, we've got these these positive developments that are occurring as we are in, in, in interacting with brothers and sisters around the world. But what do you think some of the biggest challenges are? And I know some have said secularism has has gone on, postmodernity, pluralism, although it seems like you, you just said that pluralism is much more akin to the world of Jesus in the New Testament than many Christians in the West are used to because they've grown up in Christendom where Christianity was the majority culture and they never interacted with different religions. And now people are, and they're grasping because they don't know exactly how to articulate, how to share their faith, how to interact, because many of our discipleship materials, I think, have been developed with having at least a background of the same foundation. And now people don't know what to do. They don't know how to approach it. They don't know what to do. But And I know I've got a lot of questions even with that. But I, I guess what I want to get to is what are some of the biggest challenges and obstacles that you think that the church globally is facing? That's my first question. And then the second one is, how can we educate ourselves on how to live in a pluralistic society? Where can we get resources that help us know how to share the gospel in the midst of these different cultures that we're encountering? Yeah, of course, those are, those are big questions. Maybe one way to think about it is that we, we have some internal challenges that we really need to deal with first. And, and, in, and in dealing with those, they will help us to deal with the external challenges. If we're talking about the global church, um, the internal challenge is, is perhaps the most obvious um, and I think it has a big impact on virtually everything we do. And that is exactly what we said a few minutes ago, that only 100 years ago, the vast majority of Christians were 
Europeans or Westerners or white people, however you want to put it, um, which means much of the thinking of the church um, is white in a Western. And that's not right if we're actually a global community. And it gets worse in the sense that um, if you go to a, a you know, like a, the library here, which you've been to uh, at, at our seminary or any seminary, you, you find books that uh, are on theology. It just says theology. Um, and, but then you have, in, in my library, which is the Center for the Study of Global Christianity Library, I have books that are called African theology or Asian theology. Um, so, so the odd thing is that white ways of thinking or Western ways of thinking are so powerful that they've even disappeared from being a particular perspective. Only Christians in the global South have perspective. Christians in the global north just, you know, work without cultural context, apparently, and uh, produce books on theology. So, so what you're saying is, is yeah. So like you're saying here, because there's an African theology, we, we need to have books or at least like an, not that we need to have it, but we need to have a qualifier like American theology or white theology. Is that what I'm well, hearing you say? It's true. If, if it's true, you know, that, um, that that, that um, people of color or Christians in the global South need to identify their perspective, then I think everybody does. Or it's really just realizing that there is perspective, um, and and um, so so and, and we have we have this is going on. I mean, there's a there's an excellent book called Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. And it's nine areas, including. <laughs> I'm yeah. laughing because you, you know the book. No, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, uh, Randy was just on the show okay. last week. Well, okay, so I find, yeah, Randy that's Richards. right. So it's a great book. He'll love you well, plugging and, it. And, and, he, and the new one, the new one is in, in light of our conversation. The new one is uh, misreading scripture through individualist eyes, which I think is also helpful. So these are yes, these are ways of saying that Western perspective actually impacts the way you think. And, and you know, and, and then we have books like, um, uh, you know, uh, the recent book, Reading While Black, uh, Esau Macaulay's book. When I was reading it, I was thinking to myself, you know, what, what have I been doing all these? If he's reading while black, what am I doing? Well, I'm reading while white or reading, reading while Norwegian right. or something, you know. Um, so... So it's helpful. Right. It's it's just a realization. It actually doesn't discount what you've learned, you know, over, over all of your life or what's, you know, these books on theology in our library, they're really good books. Um, that's not the issue. The issue is just recognizing how culture impacts. And of course, really the, the, the important thing is, is how culture beautifully impacts our reflection on who God is and and the reading of the scriptures and, and all of that. So it's, you know, the, 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 um, the real thing is people from all tongues, tribes, and nations worshiping God, and we get to see God uh, in his fullness through this um, assembly of humanity from all these different backgrounds. So, so the internal challenge is recognizing the uh, value of all this diversity and 
and uh, making sure that we understand, you know, the, the role of culture. Uh, you know, another related area is in um, music. Um, so I was in Mongolia a couple of years ago, mm. and it, that's another amazing place, you know, where Christianity is very new. Um, but they, they told me, I, I didn't make this, um, uh, this up myself. They told me that they felt that they were too Western and too Korean because there's 600 Korean missionaries in Mongolia as well. Um, and one of the areas is music. They were singing Western hymns, Hillsong. You know, I, rec I, I went to church there and I recognized every song. Um, and, th and there was a couple mm. of people who really wanted to, to write music um, uh, from a Mongolian cultural and music perspective. And they're starting to do that. But again, that's why, why would, why would you want, you know, there's no problem Mongolians knowing German hymns, but it's really shouldn't be the foundation of, you know, of who they are as Christians. So theology, music, all kinds of areas like that. That's the, the uh, internal challenge. And the irony is that this diversity within Christianity is very likely going to be helpful to us as we live in a pluralistic, postmodern, um, globalized society. Um, because I think the resources within Christianity for navigating that are found all over the world. There's, there's, you know, there's keys to be, to witness in these, in these, uh, you know, postmodern times and so on that, that are actually distributed across Christianity and all different uh, cultures. So once we listen to each other, then we're going to find that we're actually better off in with, with external challenges. At least that's my perspective. No, I, I, I think I think you're right. But I, I want to go back for a second because you touched on something that I, I wanted to just ask you this. What then, and, and I know that Western Christianity has some great pieces to it. I mean, there are great things that American Christians have done and are still doing and resources. But because of your interaction with Christians around the globe, is there a perception or a belief among some Christians in the West or in the East that there is a certain American gospel? And what is that American gospel that we may not even realize is American? We might just think it's, it's is the gospel, but we have attached our culture to it so much that it's no longer just the gospel, but it's the gospel with American Western values that may not be biblical. What would you say that that is? Yeah, well, it it's true that in any culture, um, there's a tendency, you know, to to uh, allow things to come in that probably are not very compatible with Christianity, um, and that's true in, in the United States uh, as well. Uh, you know, one area is wealth. You know what? What? As yeah, in any culture, that's right? Every right? culture has has weaknesses, um, and and sin has entered into every culture. And part of what you know makes missionary work interesting is discerning between what you know what can be transformed and what has to go, like, like human sacrifice. I mean, you, that's not something that's going to make its way into the church. Um, 
but there's maybe even less obvious things. Um, and I think that one of the things for the for people in the United States is um, is how to manage wealth, um, uh, and and especially in light of how um, how it impacts the rest of the world. So uh, that that's got to be one of the the biggest challenges. And when we look at you know what's happening in global Christianity. Um, you know, wealth is still concentrated in in the Western world, in Europe and in North America. Um, so, how Christians manage wealth um, is, is going to make a big difference uh, to the whole world, not just to to people here. Uh, and that can range from you know just unhealthy patterns in people's lives to always want something new and you know, wasting a lot of money to not stepping up with global issues and providing uh, funds in areas that, uh, you know, uh, are desperately needed, uh, whether it's eradicating poverty or, um, you know, education uh, for girls and which is an area that needs attention. Um, um, and then, and then another area in in the U.S. would be the, um, you know, the the strong military, and uh, you know, it's good for obviously countries have to have you know armed forces and that kind of thing. But um, how it's thought about, how it's treated, and how much money is spent uh, is another issue that we have in front of us that requires, you know, some some biblical thinking and, and um, especially again, as it relates to people in the other world and uh, other places in the world, excuse me. Um, yeah, so I think there are ways in which Christianity and culture get intertwined in, in unhealthy ways. Um, and you know, what we've been talking about this whole time is, is the fact that in a sense, Christianity is primarily a global uh, faith, which is experienced locally in community, um, but the, but the nation state is not really a primary um, a primary uh, area of allegiance for Christians. Um, I mean, we want to be good citizens of our countries, of mm. course, but but we have a higher, really a higher calling to the global situation, um, and that's a strength because a lot of what needs to happen in the world needs to be thought about with everyone in mind. Um, yeah, I, I think that's, that's a direction I hope we, we head in the future. And these are, as you mentioned before, these aren't easy issues because every culture has their blind spots, if you will. I know in working with different cultures, I had my own blind spots that I was grateful for my brothers and sisters from around the world that they pointed out to me. And and I, I saw some blind spots in their culture. And I, I thought together, we, we became stronger. We became, created a greater vision of what the kingdom of God looks like around the world. And yet we know that there are dangers lurking everywhere. You mentioned a few of them. I mean, we are dealing with a variety of different issues. But when you talked about wealth and money, and I, I know that one of the areas that you've uncovered in dealing with uh, or, or 
or working with statistics and just traveling around the world and interacting with leaders is the issue of corruption. And that's not an area that many Christians like to talk about very much. We, we don't want to draw attention to the negative. We want to focus on the positive, but yet we need to address it because if we don't, then those things are going to fester and the name of Christ will be impugned. So what what is this corruption that I'm hearing about in different pockets of the world with with money especially and what can we do to ensure or to to help stop that and I mean the church around the world how can we uh, to stop that type of thing from happening Yeah it's a it's a great question and it it is a surprising at first, it's a surprising finding, um, and we, you know, we call it ecclesiastical crime. That's the term we use. But really, a lot of it is embezzlement and fraud, and uh, and the churches, um, be- because Christians are generous people, and many people, um, you know, give 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 to churches on a regular basis. Um, it maybe isn't surprising to hear that uh, we think about six and a half percent of all Christian funds, which is about $53 billion, are lost to embezzlement and ecclesiastical crime every year. Um, and, and what this looks like, um, uh, and it happens everywhere, it's not, it, you know, it happens in, in virtually every place where funds are co- uh, collected. Um, and what it is, it's a, it's usually a siphoning off of money where there's um, not a lot of accountability. Um, and some of these cases are, you know, are in the hundreds of dollars and some are in the millions of dollars. Um, in one well-known case in Washington, D.C., um, a, uh, a secretary for a bishop uh, who traveled a lot was given uh, checks that were blank checks that were signed, and she siphoned off more and more money year after year after year um, until um, someone noticed. It took a long time, and and then what they found was a, you know a brand new home, a car, you know, and a lot of a lot of things that she wouldn't be able to afford on uh, on her regular salary. Um, I think it was a couple million dollars in the end that were siphoned off. Um, so, and then, and then the other, the other, there's fraud that takes place too. And, and uh, we have in Christianity, what the technical term is affinity fraud. And that's when somebody's that's trusted, like maybe a pastor will say, Hey, I have this invest investment opportunity. And if you, you know, give money, we can get back 15, 20, 30 percent, uh, which is too much, actually. That's the first thing that you should realize. But um, and then what's happening in many of these, they're, they're what are called Ponzi schemes. And um, that the, the people who first invest get money back, but it's from uh, new investors. And finally, the, you know, it's like a pyramid scheme. And then the whole thing collapses after a while. And these are these can be very large, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes. Um, and, and they're called affinity fraud because people say, you know, this is my pastor. I have an affinity. I trust this person. And that's why these are so dangerous, uh, because of that trust. Um, and, and they happen in other religious communities too, but Christians, you know, have, have, have their own versions of this, um, well-known versions. 
Um, most of the money is never recovered because it's often spent and sometimes, and we think, you know, along with um, people who study this professionally, that um, a lot of people are never caught either. So um, it could be higher than what we're saying, but these are kind of the best estimates that are out there. And, you know, I mean, given, given how this happens, it's not probably too surprising how to stop it, which is, it, it's all about accountability, really, um, and not putting people in a place where they're, where they're even tempted because um, it's, you know, just make it as difficult as possible for something like this to happen. That's the, that's the answer. And a lot of churches are good about that, you know, and, and nonprofits and parachurch organizations. And so, um, yeah, this is an area we would like to see, you know, uh, change. So I, I uh, had a personal example. I had a woman who is from West Africa and my small group and we were going through some small group material on finance and she had come from a culture where the pastor had full say over how the money was spent and i we got into a, a bit of a debate and it was it was very insightful because she said you know he should be trusted and i and i thought to myself yes I, ideally, ideally, all should be, but yet we have sinful inclinations, and and we need accountability. And then she she got quite adamant, and I realized I said, "What am I arguing against her for? She's talking about giving me the opportunity to decide how everything is going to be spent." And I, I I had to laugh, and I told her that I said, "I'm arguing against myself," and it was it was funny at, at the moment, um, but we do see that many do many cultures do. They they do, they see the ideal, and we do need accountability, and we do need instruction, and not just in realms of the understanding of funds, but we've seen in recent years um, just the rise of the cases of identifying abuse, and we know that they've been there, and it's great that they're coming to the to coming out because they need to be dealt with. Are you seeing that rise? I mean, we're seeing that in the United States where more attention is being brought to that, more accountability, and that's a good thing. But are you seeing that also around the globe or no? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a parallel area to, to wealth and finance. And in that, um, again, there needs to be greater accountability and rules in place and that sort of a thing. And uh, I think most cultures around the world, most countries have laws and are trying to, you know, stop or um, limit uh, abuse of various kinds. And so it's really a, it's really the same thing that, you know, don't make it or ma make it as hard as possible for it to happen. Um, and, you know, at the local church level, uh, you know, up to the national church headquarters to the um, parachurch organizations and, uh, it's a human problem. We we see it all across, uh, you know, different uh, organizations. So uh, it's something we've got to be uh, vigilant about and and make sure that we have accountability. Now, going back for a moment, um, because you mentioned that people have conceptions of what Christianity looks like. What would you describe Christianity looking like in the world today? Like if you were to create, a, I hate to say, a Christian avatar that would represent the majority of Christians, what would that look like? 
Yeah, well, people people have talked about this. I mean, the 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 simplest answer would be a young African woman, um, and that's that's really a demographic statement about you know the sort of the center of gravity of Christianity, um, and and Africa is where Christianity has grown the fastest over the past century, um, and Africa is young. And women uh, play a, a very important role in Christianity worldwide, um, and so that that would be, you know, the type of person uh, you might consider uh, in a situation like this. And it could be an urban, a person from an urban area, because I think we often think uh, in rural terms, uh, particularly of Africa, and uh, Africa has these amazing urban centers. Uh, West Africa, East, Middle, and South all have um, uh, urban centers that would represent uh, sort of the future or the present and the future of Christianity. So I think that's that's where you'd want to look, and that's the type of person that that might uh, fit that uh, description. Are are you seeing this? I mean, what are the cities doing? Because it seems to me that God is moving into the cities uh, around the world. Are you just seeing an explosion of growth among the cities in the world? Well, I would say uh, yes and no. Um, Yes, there are, um, you know, there are amazing churches in the world cities, uh, even outside of Christianity. Uh, There's there's remarkable things uh, taking place. Um, in, in unlikely places, you know, in, in um, very strong Hindu locations in India, let's say, or uh, large Buddhist cities that have uh, growing Christian churches or Muslim cities as well. Uh, so, so that is a place that you would find, um, you know, vibrant Christianity, but it's, but it's also a place with, um, with problems, with inequality, uh, economic inequality, with political corruption, um, you know, uh, and with slums. Slums is an area that we've studied, and there's there's Christian slums, and there's Muslim slums, and Hindu slums. Um, but Christians generally are not found in the slums, at least not as uh, ministers and as leaders. It's one of the areas that the church needs to pay special attention to, you know, partly because the poor are so important in, in the scriptures. Um, so we'd have to see a little bit more initiative uh, in the area of slums. As you talk about the slums, as you talk about cities and just what God is doing in those places that we wouldn't expect, where are we going to be as a church, Lord willing, in 50 years? I mean, just looking at the statistics now, where are we headed? And and then going back to the other thing that you touched on, where is the statistical center of the church? Right. Well, in, you know what we have. Um, w- one thing. One thing is that the, uh, the percentage of the world's Christians has has been pretty steady, actually, for this whole time we're talking about. You know, this shift is inside of Christianity. So Christians have been about a third of the world's population for the last 120 years or so. And um, so, so in one sense, there's not much changing. But um, one thing that's happening just now as, as we think about the present is that the church in the global south is now growing faster than the church in the north is shrinking. So I'm, I'm sure you're aware that 
Christianity in Europe, a little bit in North America, it's a more complicated here, has, has been shrinking through secularization and other things. Um, but the church in the South is now growing faster. And so we're, we're thinking, you know, Christianity could be up to about 35, possibly 36% of the world by 2050. Um, and that's new. That that's higher than than we might have anticipated. And Islam is growing at the same time. And uh, we think, you know, it would be before 2100 that those two religions would be two thirds of the world's population. And about 250, 300 years ago, they were um, only 33 percent together. So from one third of the world's population to two thirds. So that's a pretty big change. And, and uh, that's one of the things that we anticipate in the future is that this, this growth in the South that we've been watching is now outpacing um, the uh, decline in the North. And of course, Christians in the South are living everywhere now. Uh, so that's another, another thing to anticipate in the future Christianity. Here's my question for you. As you're looking at the stats, and we see that the church in the north is decreasing or shrinking, that was the pro the term that you used, is there a way to stop that shrinking from occurring? Or Because it seems to me that the church is either being purified, God is on the move for sure around the world, and he's not that he's left the West, but there seems to be something going on that I know a, a man that we both have read and you introduced me to, Leslie Newbegin. He said there is a challenge as we're reintroducing Christianity to a culture that in some ways has already heard it. How do we then continue to share and live out the gospel in the midst of a culture that seems to be on the wane or on the move away from the Christian faith? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great question. And there might be a few different answers or aspects uh, to um slowing the decline, let's say. Um, one area to look, which we've been talking about, would be um, the over-identification of Christianity with culture. So if Christianity has grown weak by um, not paying attention to areas of culture that are at odds with Christianity, uh, for example, you know, um, uh, Christian nationalists in this country, in the United States, are the least likely people to welcome uh, immigrants or welcome people from other places. So that would be something at odds. That's where you've somehow you've absorbed something from the culture that puts you at odds with the scripture. And certainly younger people can see the, the hypocritical nature of that sort of a thing. Um, so that's one thing is that's maybe the purifying that you're talking about, and and um, that would be important. Uh, another um, antidote, which we're seeing actually already, is the presence of Christians from around the world in the global north, places like Germany or France and other places where, where um, Christians from the global south are bringing about renewal. And at, at first, a lot of these churches were just made up of, you know, the cultures that people came from in Africa, Asia, Latin America, but they've increasingly been um, bringing in people uh, from the host cultures. 
uh, in, into their churches. So who, who knows what the future of that is? That, that would be another area. And, and, and yet um, another thing is that, uh, we, which we haven't talked about, is how much better churches in the global south have been at integrating evangelism and social justice or social action. And um, I think if, if uh, we get past the dichotomy in the Western church between those two, um, that might also encourage younger people to, to um, join the churches if they see a more integrated mission that does include um, things that are important to them, and rightly so, uh, things they should be working on. Um, and I think we'll get more of our young people back in the churches as a result. You bring up a great topic, and I'm glad we get a chance to, or an opportunity to explore this. But why has there been a separation between those two things? Yeah, well, it's a, you know, it's sort of a historical phenomenon. Um, and, and it has a, it has a, a phrase actually historians use. So evangelicals were actually very involved in the 19th century in social action and slavery being, you know, anti-slavery being one of the major ones. Um, and then uh, we have what's called the great reversal uh, in the early 20th century where you, you, there's a dichotomy between people who preach the gospel and people who, um, you know, demonstrate the gospel with, you know, social action. And uh, particularly with the, you know, fundamentalist, modernist controversy with the, the idea that, you know, that people who are faithful to the scriptures um, are going to, are, are going to have a, um, priority on preaching the gospel and people who are more liberal, they're just going to go out and, you know, feed the poor and that sort of a thing. And that, of course, is a very unhealthy way to look at Christianity. Um, so, um, you know, in, in more recent times, there's been people within the evangelical community who are, you know, sort of trying to bring those together. And uh, much of the, the, the best work has been done out of Latin America where this is a reality, you know, this, this idea of mm. proclamation and demonstration really is a reality and they really do belong together. And certainly we're talking about, uh, you know, the biblical basis for the whole thing. Um, so it was unhealthy to, to split them. And um, I think we're over, trying to overcome that. And uh, I think that will, that will make a difference in, in many aspects of, of the, our Christian walk. So what does that look like in, in in Latin America? I think that's, you had said that they do that more in the South, and I'm assuming now that you've kind of qualified that, that's Latin America. How do they do that differently than how we have seen it expressed uh, in the in the West? Well, you know, I think it, it, it it's, it's really just very practical, sort of a week-to-week -week, uh, reality. Um, and, and especially if people in your church are having difficulty uh, surviving, um, if you, you know, if you institute programs and you, um, you know, you make ways for people to to um, be more economically viable and that sort of a thing, um, then this this is what's going to happen. It's going to make a difference, you know, in people's day to day lives. 
And uh, there was a study done, uh, you know, of, of global Pentecostalism about 10 years ago that came up with a surprising finding because Pentecostals, for example, are often thought of to be, you know, so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Um, you know, always thinking in spiritual terms, the Holy Spirit and, and so on. And uh, this book um, showed that uh, this was the, the exact opposite was the case. And that was because Pentecostals were working so close to the ground with their communities that they were involved in all sorts of social action. Um, you know, ways of, uh, of helping people economically, standing against uh, trafficking, um, you know, working on human rights violations, just all, all across the board. And it was just this deep care and concern for the individuals and humanity that was expressing itself in churches that had a reputation for, you know, for maybe being more uh, on the spiritual side. So, so that's, that's pretty encouraging because I think the future of the church is, is uh, definitely in the hands of people um, in, in the global South. Now, I, I want to move on for a second from the stats to the story. I mean, not that we haven't had those. I mean, you've you've elaborated on what God is doing in different parts of the world. But can you give a glimpse of, as you've traveled around the world, a personal example of what you've seen God doing? I mean, really, what has grabbed your heart? Yeah, I think um, probably the most important thing for somebody like me um, is is just the the beauty of culture and the value of culture, um, uh, and and I've spent more time in Thailand than anywhere else, and I, I heard a story in Thailand that I think illustrated this to me, and, and it's a it's kind of an unusual story in in one sense. Um, so for Thai people. Um, Christianity can can be um, a, a foreign thought of in, as a, a foreign religion, and there's a famous um, illustration actually about John three sixteen, which you know is such an important verse uh, in in the West in particular. Uh, you know, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That verse. Um, someone took that verse and put it in terms of Thai culture and Buddhist culture in particular, and showed that every aspect of John 3.16 was bad news to Thai people, you know, because they don't want to live forever because they're in an endless cycle of rebirth, for example. Uh, and, and the whole thing of God having a son is very foreign and, and, and just one thing after another. Um, so, so just show it's really showing the distance between, let's say, our you know standard understanding of that verse and Thai culture. Um, and the story that I heard was that there was a um, uh, a, um, a, a a Hindu chanter who had become a Christian. And chanting in, in Hinduism would be in Sanskrit, in kind of the ancient language there. And he came to visit uh, northern Thailand, where I was living, and um, he was he was praising the Lord in Sanskrit, uh, in a in a way that would, would sound familiar, you know, to someone from from a Hindu background, but also someone in a Buddhist background. And 
um, this Thai Christian who had been a Christian for quite some time came into the room where this chanting was happening and wept and wept and wept. And someone asked, you know, why, why are you weeping? And he said, this is my heart language. And, and of course, this would sound, this, this chanting would sound very strange to any Western Christian. And maybe some Western Christians would even say this is, you know, wrong to chant like this. Um, but of course, there's enormous variety, even in Christian history, as, as far as what people have done. But it just showed uh, to me, you know, that how important it is that Christians uh, encounter Jesus in their mother tongue and in their heart language. And, and, and singing and worship is sort of fundamental to the whole thing. And I, one thing I'm really grateful for is there's a there's a really there's an international group of Christians uh, who who are advocating for this, uh, and it's the field is called ethnodoxology, which is just the worship of God among the peoples of the world, and uh, I I think this is the area that we, we see maybe the the value of culture as it relates um, you know to to all of the peoples of the world. And um, I'm, I'm just so grateful that we're, you know, moving in that direction for um, peoples to express their, their culture, uh, express their faith in, in their culture and in their language. I, I agree. I, I, you know, being a, a pastor of a church with the, that we had people from all different nations, one of the most difficult things was finding songs that were representative of the different cultures that were there because we wanted to celebrate the cultures. We didn't want to just assume that everyone knew our the songs of the the church that had been there, but as we had become more diversified and we God brought more different ethnicities, we wanted our worship to be exp- to be representative of the the backgrounds of the different people that were there and it was it was an adventure. Um but we trying to find material was often hard because it wasn't in English or it wasn't well known. It wasn't published perhaps. And so that was constant challenge, but it's, it's encouraging to hear people worship in their heart language and no matter what that background is. Uh, But going back for a moment, you are at the top of your field. I mean, you are a statistician and into demographics. You are the guy that everyone looks to for what is going on in the church around the world. But here's my question for you. Who do you look up to? I mean, who do you read? Who do you look at? Yeah, well, it's not hard to be in the top of your field when there's only like three people. So we're, uh, you know, <laughs> we're, we're definitely outstanding, but we're there isn't much many people in this field. So, yeah. Well, you know That's what? Awesome. Um, <laughs> One of the actually the great joys of what I'm doing, because because I'm a, you know, I'm a kind of a standard evangelical, you know, I have been all my life. Um, a lot of it's been within the, the mainstream Christianity, you know, the Lutheran Church and Presbyterian Church and that sort of a thing. Um, so I, there's actually two places I go. Um, one is uh, to people in other traditions. So, so, you know, I was talking, saying about talking about integral missions, social justice, and that sort of thing. I teach a course on it here. And uh, I found that the very best, I want to open my class in prayer. 
right? Each, each, each uh, week. And I found that the very best set of prayers when it comes to social action are from the Catholic Church. Because they just have such a long and deep, um, you know, interaction with the scriptures on, on, on caring for the poor, essentially. And people love these prayers. My evangelical class loves these prayers because they're so deep and they're so good. So one place I'd go is I try to go outside of my own Christian experience, you know, to draw from other traditions. And then, of course, I'm uh, constantly reading um, on Christians from around the world. I just read, actually professionally, I, I helped to evaluate a book that was a collection of theology from Oceania, from the Pacific Islands. And it was just beautiful. This book is so encouraging to hear the, you know, the way that that Pacific Islanders are thinking about their faith and, and theology. So that's that's a place I go. And another place I go is uh, to other religions um, and try to try to find commonalities and strength. And uh, I've been very close to the Jewish community here in Boston. I've learned so much. Uh, from them um, over the years, uh, good friendships, good collaboration, um, and and uh, that's that's just so encouraging, you know, in the context of my own evangelical experience to draw from other traditions, even other religions, um, just the strengths that are there, and the, there's so many areas that we can collaborate on, um, you know, and still remain true to our own our own convictions. So, um, and I'm grateful to be in Boston too. It's a good place to, to do this sort of thing. You know, one of the things that we, it, we, we talk about in dealing and interacting with other religions, I think many evangelicals haven't had to do, and you've referenced that when you're talking about the people within Singapore and how to get along with other people. Why do you think that is so difficult for Christians today? Because I, I hear you say that you seem to be very comfortable in that, and I know many evangelicals would not be comfortable in that at all. They 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 pull away from it. They don't want to interact with. They feel that if they were to somehow interact, they would be compromising their faith in doing so. How do you work through that? Yeah, I think I think there's two there's two ways to work through it. One is to educate yourself on what people actually believe. And, and while you're at it, you know, strengthen your own sense of what it is that you believe and why. So there's, there's a little bit of reading that can be done, um, you know, reading ab about other pe people's experiences and, and that sort of a thing. And I mean, if you like the academic side, there's plenty of books out there to help. But, but even on the more popular side, I think we can we can do a bit of reading to get a little bit more comfortable uh, with people in, of, of, in other backgrounds, other religious backgrounds, you might say. Um, but there's no, there's no substitute for friendship and hospitality. And that's, I think, where most of the work is done. Um, and, and, because, and we have to sort of unlearn you know, the fear and, the, and, and the, maybe the prejudice and, and that sort of a thing. Uh, because once you personally know people, in other religions, you you just really change, really changes how you feel about spending time with them or even going with them on some of their 
outings, you know, even going to other temples as a guest or, or that kind of a thing. Um, there's, there's no reason that, that a, you know, a, a faithful Christian can't um, be good friends with people in, of other faiths and, and be good, true friends as well. Uh, not not treating people as a project, but really treating them as human beings, and and uh, and again, I think there's a lot of opportunity for that. Um, and one one ironic example in my life is you, you've heard me talk now quite a bit about Thailand. So when when I was 20 or so, I, I you know went to California, took some training, and then went all the way to Thailand before I ever met the first Thai person that I had seen and someone who was Buddhist who could, you know, explain to me what, what Buddhism was all about. The irony is when I go back to visit my mother and she lives in the house that I grew up in uh, all, all those years ago, if I go to my old bedroom where I, where I used to be and I look out the window, there's a Thai person standing there. And it's the neighbor that my mother's next door neighbor is from Bangkok. And um, she married uh, a Minnesotan guy, a white Minnesotan guy, and they live right next door to my mom. And I thought, what a difference. And I've you know, had fun conversations with her over all these years. But I think what a difference it would have made if I could have met a Thai person next door instead of going to the other side of the world. And that's part of the, the, you know, the world that we live in now is one that offers us these kind of opportunities to, to get to know people. And I'm really grateful for that. And I am too, just to add to that. I know I had uh, befriended a Muslim man who would, who had been taking ESL class at our church and invited him to church. And he came and it changed just the, the whole feel of the sanctuary because many people knew that he was a Muslim. And it started a friendship. And it, and it was hard at first because I did in many ways look at him as a project. But the more that we got to know it, one another, the more that he became a very close friend. And at the same time, it was the continued challenge to share Jesus and not not sanitize or bring down my faith. I didn't want to be hostile to his, but yet I had to be honest and share who Jesus is. Is that a challenge to, it was for me, I don't know how it is for others, but has that been a challenge for you? I mean, how have you kept your your zeal alive? How do you love someone and, and continue to share Jesus with them? I mean, you're not, I know you're not doing it every moment of every day, but you're, you're living life with them. You're loving them for who they are. You're, you're loving them and you're trying to, to, in many ways, love them into the kingdom. How do you, how do you personally go about that? Well, I think, I think the, the uh, most important thing is that your care and your concern and your love are genuine. Um, and that, and you really, you really have to take a, a learning posture, I think. And that maybe is where it's the hardest, hardest for, for Christians, especially, I heard someone say the other day, if you're already full, then there's, there's nothing that I can, that I can offer you. And so in one sense, we're full, we're full with the grace of, of, of Jesus, but surely as humans, we can learn something and we can, um, and we can have genuine interest in other people, genuine care for them, um, 
And that's where I really want to work um, in my relationships with different people, um, that they really do know that I care and that I would, you know, stand up for them. And I have opportunities to do that, um, both professionally and in just, just in everyday life. Um, and I think that that is actually the most important thing. And I think people trip up there um, pretty easily at maybe at the beginning of relationships to that, that it's not really genuine. Uh, it has to be genuine. I think people can tell. And that's, that's really the, the love side of it too, is love is genuine. Um, and, and people know it's, it's that, that you really do love them. And, and uh, they'll know we're Christians by our love. I mean, it's pretty foundational to who we are, too. Um, so I, I just feel like that, that has to be there. And, and that might be hard, um, particularly in the beginning. But once you get to know people and you really do care, um, I think the gospel goes along these lines of genuine love. I mean, it sounds crazy to say it, but... Um, it, that has to be the case. Genuine loving each one another. And that's, I think that's going to have to be the, I hate to say the name of the game, but as we in, in continue to interact with people of different cultures, I think within evangelicalism, especially within the West, we have to go beyond the, the uh, as one man had written, the used car salesman approach, just getting them to to acknowledge or give an assent to the message. But he said, become a tour guide instead walking on a journey with people so that they that you might show them Christ and that you might get to know them and truly love them and hear from them but share Jesus and the hope of Jesus and i think that might be the approach that many in the west have to develop in the coming years because i think that's so though foreign to so many evangelicals that are older because they've grown up in a christendom world and we're in this post-Christian or pluralistic culture today, and I think many are still trying to find their footing. How do we follow Jesus in the midst of our ever-changing culture? Um, and and so what are some of the things that you would recommend that our listeners do to really join what God is doing? I remember Henry Blackaby wrote the book years ago called Experiencing God, and he said, find out where God is working and then join him there. How do we join God where he's working and and not get tripped up? Because most of our listeners are in the West, although we have a global audience, many within India and Bangladesh. But how do we stop from getting tripped up with the nationalism that seems to be so part and parcel of our culture today so that we we don't get tripped up, but we continue to see and join God and and in what He's doing, so that His kingdom might continue to expand in the hearts and minds of men all over the world. What are some practical steps that we can do in order to ensure that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think the starting point is is um, uh, that we would want to be true to the Scriptures first. Um, and, and that's that to me is one of the antidotes to um, nationalism is the the way in which the scriptures describe who we're, who we are to be, and they're actually very different than than uh, the message uh, that is given uh, by nationalists. Nationalists uh, are interested in power, privilege, that sort of thing, and uh, the book that that is the basis of our faith 
is all about humility, service, uh, those sort of things. So it's it's really the starting place for us, uh, oddly enough, is um, you know to to um, be good followers of Jesus, be you know good disciples, and so discipleship I think plays a, a, an essential role in you know how we treat uh, other people. Um, and then from there, I think, again, it's really the same things is to just get out of your comfort zone and meet people from other places, um, you know, and you can make it fun. You can, you can um, go to markets that, you know, represent other cultures. Um, that's something we've done as a family. We enjoy doing it. We've done it all over the world, um, even including Minnesota, which has, has some remarkable markets. Um, uh, of um, people from around the world that, you know, where, where they're selling their food and, and often there's, uh, there's restaurants and that sort of a thing in proximity there that just allow you to get outside of your own experience. And then of course, more importantly, again, is, is the friendships that we can make uh, across those cultures. And, and, um, and there needs to be bridge people in all of these situations. So maybe that would be a something to consider is how can you be a bridge? Can you be the first one in your community who goes to another community, welcomes people, and maybe maybe is the um, bridge by which your church is now involved with another church or people of another faith even? I, I, think, I think there's practical things that we can do but it does take somebody who has has the wherewithal and the courage, uh, maybe to get outside of the standard way of doing things and and provide a bridge into a new community. Um, there's people like that all around the world who have done that, and um, they're they're a group of people that I I admire a lot, um, and because I think that that's the future. It's the future in urban centers, and it's a future in you know, in the United States, around the world, is people who can connect, connect different cultures, um, and I, I think that's that's something that we could uh, look for. And we could also, you know, read stories of people who have um, have moved. One of my favorite kinds of literature is that written by diaspora people. I think they have insights into different cultures that you can't find anywhere else. Um, and so if you look at, you know, read, read what people write about once they've had to move to another country and reflect on their situation, I think that's a, another area that could be helpful for us as we, as we try to become more adept at navigating uh, between uh, different cultures. Well, those are, are great insights, and I know that many of those you shared with me, and that's been a huge influence on me, and I want to thank you for that because I think that God is clearly just working around the world, and I know I grew up in a very small town in east-central Illinois, and we were a rural town. We had everyone that looked the same, uh, although we had a Amish population around us, and to go from there to Chicago and then out to Boston and then just come back to the Chicagoland area where I've been for the past decade or so and to see how the nations have been brought just to the city that I'm in. 
and we interact with people from Nepal, from Myanmar, from Congo and India and uh, all of these different countries. But just seeing what God is doing in the world is absolutely incredible. And that's why I think what you're doing is so important for the church, because I do think that many of the the potholes or obstacles are are all around us that could easily ensnare or trip us up to keep us from the mission of Christ, to see what he's really trying to do in the world, and that's reach the nations and glorify his name. And, and that's what he's doing, and he's shifting the church, he's reaching people, and, and that shouldn't be a threat, but that should be something that we should enjoy. And so I just want to thank you for coming on the show for uh, just sharing some of these fascinating insights with us. Um, what What's a way that people can find out more about what you're doing? I know some, they could just go on YouTube and Google Todd Johnson, Gordon Conwell, and there's many different videos of you doing presentations all over the world. But what's what's another way that people can learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, well, thank you very much. It's been uh, great to be with you during this time for sure. Uh, we do have a, a, a nice uh, website that's sort of dedicated to what we do, and it's uh, www.globalchristianity.org. So it's a pretty simple URL, uh, globalchristianity.org. And we do have uh, we have some downloads for you there if you want if you're you know interested in some of our findings. We have some videos. We also are quoted in the press quite a bit, uh, and we, you can see some of the articles where we have been quoted and, and um, other resources for you there. So we'd, we'd love to have you visit, and um, uh, we're doing, uh, you'll, you'll also encounter our blog. We do a weekly blog. I've been blogging this month on Christian-Muslim relations because I'm teaching a course here starting next week on that. Um, so that's another place there that you'll see uh, what we're thinking about and what we're learning. Um, we'd love to, and you can contact us if you have any questions. So um, please go to our, our website for more information. Well, thank you, Todd, for coming on Apollos Watered. And we look forward to hearing from you in the future and just seeing what God continues to do through you and how you might be able to help us saturate our world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Thanks for coming on the show, Todd. Thank you so much. It's been great to be with you. I want to thank Todd for coming on the show, and I want to encourage you to be a bridge wherever you are. No matter what your ethnic background is, be courageous enough to cross the street, to strike up a conversation, to ask for a name, to invite someone into your home, have a meal with someone. If God is truly bringing the nations to the nations, then we need to find out how we can be participants in that. And I would heavily encourage you to reach out and do it, because not too many do. Unfortunately, church is one of the most segregated places on a Sunday morning in the United States, and I know that other cultures are divided by tribe or ethnicity, or whatever case you want to have with it. But God is calling us to reach out to become a true global community that is representative of the nations, learning how to work out our salvation with fear and trembling as we try to live in this community called church the way that God intended it. 
And I understand that many of my listeners may not be in that type of ethnic group or in that type of community, but if you are, then you need to jump into that so that God might continue to work his will in his way. And I find that when I do that, that my faith is grown. And I hope and pray that your faith is grown too, because without the nations present in our worship, when they are present in our community, our vision of God can be diminished because there's something about each culture that brings out something about who God is that we often don't see in our own host culture. I would heavily encourage you to go back and listen to the first conversation if you haven't yet, but I would also encourage you to go to the website on global Christianity and check out the stats and see what God is doing. And also find out how you can pray for the nations. I would heavily encourage you to go to Prayercast or OneWayMinistries.org because they have so many different videos and resources for you so that you can learn how you might be able to pray for the nations and participate in what God is doing so that God's name might receive glory. You might fulfill your purpose and, and find new joy that you haven't discovered before. With that in mind, I want to encourage you also about our first ever Apollos Watered Weekend. Uh, it's a men's retreat that's coming up in McWanago, Wisconsin from February 19th to Sunday, February 21st. And join us as we talk about how we can thrive in Babylon. You can sign up on Phantom Ranch's website, phantomranch.org slash events. We also want to give a shout out to Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area, then you need to call Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate and her team. She does come with years of experience and loves people. She's trustworthy, cares about her clients. I know this and I've said this before and I'm going to keep saying it because I am one of her clients. She is my agent. She met with us and learned what was right. I mean, what we were looking for and what was right for us. And that was not an easy thing to do. We were all over the place. And yet she helped us find exactly what we were looking for. And she didn't only help us purchase a home. And this is what I love about Kathy is that she checked in regularly on us to see how we were doing. She is attentive to your needs and style and, and comes alongside you to help you discover and find what is best for you. I would recommend giving her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her Travis sent you. Well, that's it for today, folks. If this has helped you so that you can saturate your world, then hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, interact with us on our Facebook page, and share this episode with other people. Water your faith. Water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Thank you.